that became a very violent era, violent at the ballot box, as well as violence in the streets. Uh, it was perhaps the most violent time in America outside of warfare. And not surprisingly, alcohol fueled a lot of this. Uh, I read a statistic that the average American consumed five gallons of spirits a year, which is double the current rate. An excerpt from today's guest, whose new book explores what one reviewer called the ugliest period in American history. Author J.D. Dickey is here to discuss the Republic of Violence, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spirit YouTube channel. We've got bonus video material from podcasts plus tons of military history videos, including full-length documentaries. It's a great way to spend some time, and don't forget to subscribe while you're there. And click the bell icon so you'll be notified of all the great weekly videos we're uploading. Welcome back. Today's guest has been writing books for 20 years, first as an author for Penguin Rough Guides, now as a writer of narrative nonfiction about American history, society, and culture. His latest book is called The Republic of Violence, The Tormented Rise of Abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. And author J.D. Dickey joins us now. J.D., welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're honored. And uh, I noted you do a lot of this type of history in the 19th century. Is, is that your main interest? It is. I think it's fascinating in a couple different ways. I think a lot of the themes that developed in the 19th century in terms of the social conflicts in America that are still with us today were very prominent then and very much on the surface without a lot of marketing speak and other, and other ways that we kind of obfuscate the truth. And that's what's interesting to me. The 19th century is kind of the kind of the core of America in some ways without the window dressing. And also another reason I like writing about the 19th century is I don't want to write about consumerism and nuclear weapons and the Internet, things like that. That's not really my uh, uh, comfort zone. So writing about the 19th century is a little easier. Mm. Can you paint a picture of this time in history, 50 years after the revolution? Um, yeah, absolutely. So this is a time of what historians call a Jacksonian democracy. So a time when property qualifications for the vote were falling or had fallen. And the, the rise of the white working class was uh, becoming prominent uh, through the presidency of Andrew Jackson. And it was also a time of social ferment um, and religious revival. The Second Great Awakening happened then, and that was a, a Protestant experience of new religious enthusiasm and the development of new denominations and things like that. That also led to reform movements, uh, reform movements uh, in a variety of different ways, but especially temperance and abolition. And so amid all this, there was a sort of tribalism in politics, um, not only from religious and political factions, but just from uh, the rise of new groups that were fighting for things that hadn't been seen before, like what was called immediatism in abolition, the immediate uh, abolition of slavery. And these kind of things created uh, a real conflict between the previous ruling generation, if you will, uh, those who had held power in America, and those who were questioning those things. 
And because of all these things, it became a very violent era, violent at the uh, ballot box, um, as well as violence in the streets. Uh, It was perhaps the most violent time in America outside of warfare. And not surprisingly, alcohol fueled a lot of this. Uh, I read a statistic that the average American consumed five gallons of spirits a year, which is double the current rate and higher than any country on earth currently. And so you can imagine what all of that kind of did to create a pretty uh, potent mix. I, uh, I was thinking about this time and I remembered a movie I saw several years ago. And I think it's, it's a little bit after this time, but uh, it's called Gangs of New York. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that film? Oh yeah, absolutely, Martin Scorsese. I think it's from 2000 and, it, and it's very much relevant in some ways in that, in that it concerns I'm trying to remember the uh, the opening sequence. The opening sequence is set earlier than the rest of the movie, but I believe it's in the 1840s, which comes right after the time I'm writing about. Absolutely. And you get a good sense in that movie, which is based on the book Gangs of New York, about the different factions in, in New York City uh, politics and on the streets, and ultimately it leads up to the draft riots in 1863. And so that's kind of, we don't see a lot of this period uh, in the media, but that is a glimpse of it. And I think that's a good reference. And that gives you a sense of just kind of the factionalism and the real anger and uh, hatred in some cases that were found in American life, especially in surprisingly the North at that time. And uh, and the violence in, in the city at that time, in, mm-hmm. in New York City, was, Absolutely. was overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very considerable. I mean, those were, the, in, in the middle of the Civil War, those were the worst riots in American history, I believe, unless the L.A. riots superseded them in 1992. But I believe that had the uh, greatest number of casualties. And it had all led up, of course, um, because of the conflict of the war and about conscription, about uh, interethnic conflict between um, black and Irish citizens of of the city and several different other factors. So I, I think it's good to bring that up as seeing that as sort of the culmination of civic disorder that began very much in the 1830s, in the period I'm writing about, which is 1833 to 1838. One more reference from that movie since we're talking about the Civil War draft riots, which happened actually just right after Gettysburg. The, the mm-hmm. Union soldiers had to head up to New York <laughs> yes, to put that right. down. And yeah. uh, a scene that I remember from the movie that sticks with me is, is the Irish immigrants coming off the boat and being handed a uniform and told to get on a, you know. <laughs> right, <on> a, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, um, kind of the revolving door to yeah. some degree. And uh it's true. And the Irish in that movie were the uh, enactors of the violence. But in the, in the, in the uh, story that I'm writing, or at least in the 1830s, they were often the victims of it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were anti-Irish riots, anti-Catholic riots at the time, and there were in later decades as well. So they had been at the center of this in a couple different ways. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to trace that. Um, my book primarily concerns violence against abolition and abolitionists and black citizens. But at the same time, there's a whole other thread from the period that concerns anti-Irish, anti-Catholic violence, um, including a notorious uh, riot against a convent of nuns 
in mm. Boston in the mid 1830s, the Ursuline Convent riot. And I, I can't think of anything more egregious than that in terms of illustrating kind of the depravity of what was going on at the time. How did Jackson set the tone as the leader of the country? Do you think this contributed to the, to the atmosphere? I think so, very much. There were some conflicts that were already brewing in American society by this point, and slavery was one of them. But Jackson's so-called imperial presidency, he was actually called King Andrew by his opponents, had a lot to do with it in terms of the class-conscious political warfare that he encouraged um, from his side and the rhetoric that was used as well. This was the breakup of the, this is the time of the breakup of the old Democratic Republican Party into factions. And Jackson's new Democratic Party was set against the Whigs, which developed during his presidency as a, a counterfactor to him. And Jackson himself was a dualist. He carried around lead in his body from previous gunfights. He had violent rhetoric that he used at threatening to hang his enemies as high as Haman in one case. And he was a slaveholder, which made him a, a target of abolitionists uh, because of his championing of human bondage in a variety of different ways. And so if you add the personal elements to his policies, which a lot of Americans saw as encroaching on the traditional role of the president, arrogating power, um, it really created a, a potent combination. And some of the major issues, apart from slavery and abolition, were, of course, the uh, veto of the rechartering of the Bank of the United States, which led to more uh, dramatic um, economic troubles later on, the Panic of 1837, the nullification crisis with, uh, with his vice president, John Calhoun, and of course, the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which he signed and which later led the way to the Trail of Tears. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, my guest will be author and retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel David Kelly, discussing his new book about the 7th Marines' intense street fighting in Iraq in 2004, Hell in the Streets of Huseba. Finally, he got a call that, oh, we, we, we got the skipper. We got the 6th. Uh, Lima 6 is, is the, the uh, call sign for the company commander. Lieutenant Neal was Lima 5. And Lieutenant Neal said, good, put him on the hook. And uh, they said that Lima 6 is a routine casualty. And at first, Captain Neal, Lieutenant Neal said, oh, good, That's, that means he's, he's hurt, he can't talk. But routine casualty can mean either a, a routine wound or the person's dead. And in this case, once he realized that it meant that Captain Gannon was no longer alive, he put out a call on the radio net, all stations be advised, Lima 5 is now Lima 6. That's next time. As you mentioned, this is the beginning of the abolition movement, and a leading figure, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, was uh, quite larger than life. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, he was. He was a, um, a figure that's still with us today in, in memory in a lot of ways. And he was probably the most famous of abolitionists at the time. I'm not sure he was the most important I have to remember that the modern abolition movement really started in 1817 with um, black Philadelphians reacting to the colonization movement. That was a movement of a lot of politicians and leading citizens to try to send free black Americans to Africa. And so black citizens had risen up in the dozen years before Garrison got involved in this. But once he did get involved, 
he became a potent and often strident voice in favor of immediatism through his newspaper, The, the Liberator. And the Liberator, through the Liberator, he became a, cha- a champion for the cause and also something of a moral purist. And this isn't someone who caviled or who equivocated in his rhetoric. And he often created more enemies than he had friends. And not surprisingly, because of all this uh, demand for immediatism and the way he castigated his enemies, he became the target of a mob in 1835, which nearly hanged him in Boston Common. He was lucky, lucky to survive that. And he went on to continue his radicalism until he became the sort of the center figure uh, for the schism that affected the abolition movement later on in the 1830s. But he is a bit of a paradoxical figure because on the one hand, his rhetoric was so strong and uncompromising and in many ways bellicose. But at the same time, he was nonviolent. He, he believed firmly in nonviolence and insisted on it and kind of set the tone for the movement in that regard. So in a lot of ways, there's a link between abolitionists like Garrison and later political figures in American history like Martin Luther King and others in the sense that you turn the other cheek and and you lay down before your enemies instead of striking them. And so for all of these reasons, he became a figure of real interest and a, a galvanizing figure. A quote I came across kind of revealed his thinking and thinking about the clash, coming clash between the North and the South. He said, the compact which exists between the North and the South is a covenant with death and agreement with hell. Yeah, yeah, very much. And he he saw slavery as embedded in the U.S. Constitution. And and even though slavery was not mentioned explicitly, it was implicitly um, mentioned in things like the Three-Fifths Compromise and other elements. And Garrison had a feeling that if the Union was so corrupted by slavery, that it was better for the Union to dissolve than to persist. And this was an incredibly radical idea and challenging. It'd be challenging even today. And that's why he made quotes like the one you read. He also burned a copy of the Constitution in public, an act that even today would seem almost unimaginable. Uh, simply in, in, in what it would suggest. And so Garrison felt very strongly, and he had a huge number of enemies, and he made himself into the central abolitionist, even though there were other people that I detail in the book that arguably were able to get more accomplished for the movement, just in terms of the practical reality of forging alliances and trying to achieve social progress step by step instead of just using aggressive rhetoric in print. It, it sounds like he became a target of mm-hmm. a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, very much. Um, he was. He and his allies were probably among the most hated people in some quarters and, and loved in other quarters as well, certainly. Um, he, he found a, a great following among African-Americans. But at the same time, the mainstream politicians were quite wary of him and, in fact, attacked him personally just as he attacked them. Do you think uh, at this time it was slavery alone that divided the country, or were there other factors that came I think slavery was, was at the core of it. You know, you can look at 
other factors, and often they have a relation to slavery in some way. So if you think about American expansionism and manifest destiny, and that became one of the guiding factors of the time, and you think of the presidency of James Polk, which came after this period as sort of embodying that. But even that had an aspect that dealt with slavery, and that is the, uh, the addition of slave states into the Union and the controversies over that, most famously later in Kansas, Nebraska. And I think that slavery is, is a primary cause, and we can see that it, there were other causes, as I mentioned, that kind of revolved around that, that related to it in some way or another, like industrializing America versus keeping it agricultural, uh, whether how fast and rather to expand the country and internal improvements and things like that, and other factors that really led up to this ferment of the Civil War. And I think my book, what I try to do in the book, is show how the country broke down in a number of ways, starting in the 1830s uh, with abolition and showing how this was really a question of abolition and the question over slavery, even raising it, uh, creating factions in the North. And in the South, of course, it was it was a given that slavery was going on. But all of these battles were going on in the North, in the streets, These this mob violence, often against abolitionists. And this was kind of the starting point for the conflicts that later led the way toward the Civil War. I'm kind of showing where it all started in this book and, 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 uh, and its repercussions. What was the catalyst that made you want to write about this time period? That it was just not covered or was there something yeah. else? For sure. I definitely agree, think that it wasn't um, there covered. There were very few books on the subject. And the first real study of the, this particular topic, and one of the only ones, was called Gentlemen of, of Property and Standing. And that came out 50 years ago. And, you know, there it feels like this is, a, this is a story that really should be covered more. We know about the abolitionists of the 1840s. And people like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth. But the figures of the 1830s, aside from Garrison, are much more obscure. And so to me, in coming across this story, I, I felt it was important to recognize these people, men and women, black people and white people, uh, from a variety of different classes, and try to bring them to a little more prominence. Now, to go back to your question, what was it that prompted me to, to write this? I, my second book is, was called Rising in Flames, and it was about the social forces that animated William Sherman's march through Georgia, the Western campaign of the Civil War. And I was looking at what I might call the civic rearguard of the troops. So these were the women, the nurses, the ministers, the escaped slaves who supported the troops in the background behind the scenes and how motivated many of these people were by abolition and how they had fought quite often civilly in the years and decades before this. Uh, one of the figures, Mary Livermore, had been active in Kansas during the Bleeding Kansas period. And others had gone back to the 1830s in terms of the conflicts they endured. So I think this book in many ways is a prequel to my Rising in Flames book. That was the outcome of the story in the Civil War. But where did it all begin? And this book was my way of tracing it back. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. The lineage. Yeah. The book is called The Republic of Violence, The Tormented Rise of Abolition 
in Andrew Jackson's America. And JD, thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely. It was great to be here. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be author and retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel David Kelly discussing his new book about the 7th Marines' intense street fighting in Iraq in 2004, Hell in the Streets of Huseba. Finally, he got a call that, oh, we, we, we got the skipper. We got the six. Uh, Lima six is, is the, the uh, call sign for the c- company commander. Lieutenant Neal was Lima five. And Lieutenant Neal said, good, put him on the hook. And uh, they said, Lima six is a routine casualty. And at first, Captain Neal, Lieutenant Neal said, oh, good. That's, that means he's, he's hurt. He can't talk. But routine casualty can mean either a, a routine wound or the person's dead. And in this case, once he realized that it meant that Captain Gannon was no longer alive, he put out a call on the radio net, all stations be advised, Lima 5 is now Lima 6. That's next time. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spare YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spare. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.